Please remain standing for the reading of God's Word. We will be looking in Acts chapter 19 this morning, and you can find it on page 928 of your pew Bible. Hear now the reading of God's holy, inerrant, inspired, and therefore authoritative Word. And it happened that while Apollos was at Corinth, Paul passed through the inland country and came to Ephesus. There he found some disciples, and he said to them, Did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? And they said, No, we have not even heard that there is a Holy Spirit. And he said, Into what then were you baptized? They said, Into John's baptism. And Paul said, John baptized with the baptism of repentance, telling the people to believe in the one who was to come after him, that is, Jesus On hearing this, they were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. And when Paul had laid his hands on them, the Holy Spirit came on them, and they began speaking in tongues and prophesying. There were about 12 men in all. And he entered the synagogue and for three months spoke boldly, reasoning and persuading them about the kingdom of God. But when some became stubborn and continued in unbelief, speaking evil of the way before the congregation, he withdrew from them and took the disciples with him reasoning daily in the hall of Tyrannus. This continued for two years so that all the residents of Asia heard the word of the Lord, both Jews and Greeks. And God was doing extraordinary miracles by the hands of Paul so that even handkerchiefs or aprons that had touched his skin were carried away to the sick and their diseases left them and the evil spirits came out of them. Then some of the itinerant Jewish exorcists undertook to invoke the name of the Lord Jesus over those who had evil spirits, saying, I adjure you by the Jesus whom Paul proclaims. Seven sons of a Jewish high priest named Sceva were doing this, but the evil spirit answered them, Jesus I know, and Paul I recognize, but who are you? And the man in whom was the evil spirit leaped on them, mastered all of them, and overpowered them, so that they fled out of the house naked and wounded. And this became known to all the residents of Ephesus, both Jews and Greeks, and fear fell upon them all, and the name of the Lord Jesus was extolled. Also many of those who were now believers came, confessing and divulging their practices, and a number of those who had practiced magic arts brought their books together and burned them in the sight of all. And they counted the value of them and found it came to 50,000 pieces of silver. So the word of the Lord continued to increase and prevail mightily. The grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of our God shall stand forever and ever. Amen. Let's pray together. O Lord, it is our prayer request that the Holy Spirit that came down on Ephesus might come down this morning and that you might speak, that you might teach, and that you might apply such truth to our lives, that the word of God might increase mightily. We pray in and through Christ Jesus, our Lord. Amen. You may be seated. If any of you were wondering why Pastor Joel went on sabbatical this month, perhaps this text would answer that question. At the reading of it, if 
you were starting to scratch your head and you said, what just happened? You're in great company. It is quite difficult to read these verses and try to figure out what is the link? What's the connection point? Luke, why are you saying all of these things? What does it have to do? How do we understand it? And yet I think what Luke is trying to say in a very profound way and through very difficult circumstances is that the gospel disturbs us. Now, you hear that term and perhaps you think, is that, are you sure, Danny, that's the word you want to use, disturb? It's a verb, you know. That word we tend to, well, we tend to connect it with, it's an interference. It's a It's an interruption, an interruption of what might be considered peace or rest, or perhaps even there's a sense of order, and we call it a disturbance when something comes in and interferes with that. It interrupts that. In fact, actually, that is a term Luke will use next week in verse 23 to describe what's happening, a disturbance, perhaps the way in which we need to think about it is not just a disturbance, but in the plural, disturbances. You can see as we were reading this morning that the gospel is disturbing individuals. There are people that are disturbed by the gospel. There are places that were disturbed by the gospel, and we want to look at that this morning. But how do we understand the term gospel disturbances? Perhaps you and I might use the other term, a spiritual awakening. The question that we're trying to wrestle with is when the power of God comes down from heaven and it enters into the synagogue or the hall of Tyrannus or perhaps your own very heart, what happens? We call it a disturbance, a spiritual awakening the facade of what might be considered peace or rest in your life is shaken up and the gospel in full power begins to work. And so we want to look at that this morning in these individuals and in these places. How does this gospel disturb them? What happens? What spiritual awakening, you might say, takes place? And so we'll look beginning with the disciples. That's what you get with Luke in the first section, the first eight verses or so. He begins, he gives us a time marker, doesn't he? And it happened that while Apollos was at Corinth, you remember Apollos, we spoke of him last week. He initially was in Ephesus and he was preaching with boldness, teaching accurately the things of Jesus, but only knew the baptism of John and and he wanted to go to Corinth and he got recommendation letters from the saints. And so he is now in Corinth and Paul is entering into Ephesus. If you remember, I told you something about this third missionary journey. It's beginning right now. Paul spent roughly two years at Corinth and he's going to spend roughly three years at Ephesus. It is a major city. It's perhaps the fourth largest city in the Roman Empire. We'll talk more about some of its unique features next week. But you heard in the very beginning 
It's an inland country. It's a, it's a gateway, you might say, to all of Asia. It was known for its unique scholarship. It had a large library, perhaps rivaling that of Alexandria. It had an amphitheater, an auditorium, some 25,000 seats available. It had a very important historical marker. That is the temple of Artemis. We'll hear much more about that temple next week. Artemis, the temple of Artemis was known as one of the seven wonders of the world. And one ancient historian said this about it. I have set eyes on the wall of lofty Babylon, on which is a road for chariots and the statue of Zeus by the Alpheus and the hanging gardens and the colossus of the sun and the huge labor of the high pyramids and the vast tomb of Massilus. But when I saw the house of Artemis that mounted to the clouds, those other marvels lost their brilliancy. And I said, Lo, apart from Olympus, the sun never looked on aught so grand. This is Ephesus. It has this temple. The Ephesians, in fact, built it. And this is where Paul is landing. And when he arrives, he finds these disciples. And perhaps you began to think one thing, and Luke tries to tell you something different. He uses the term disciples. And typically when Luke says that, we understand that to mean Christians. But when you read this encounter that Paul has with these 12 that Luke will later tell us, I don't think we can say when Paul finds them, they're Christians. He is describing, that is Luke, a gospel disturbance. The gospel comes in and these 12 have a spiritual awakening, you might say. Consider the question that Paul poses to them. Did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? We're learning quite quickly that there's something very deficient in these individuals' Christian life, if you wanted to call it that. I would tell you they're not Christians, but I think Luke is trying to demonstrate there is a significant truth deficiency in what they understand to be the gospel. And so Paul says, did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? And did you catch their answer? They don't just say no. They say no and, well, in fact, we've never heard of the Holy Spirit. Now, does that mean they have, in fact, never heard of the Holy Spirit? Perhaps, because we learn that they are disciples of John. We don't know how much they understood from John the Baptist's teaching. So we don't know, in fact, if they've heard of the Holy Spirit or not. Maybe that's what it means. Or maybe what they're saying is, no, we haven't heard. And what we're understanding is we have not heard of any occasion by which the Holy Spirit has descended from heaven and made its way into the lives of God's people. It doesn't matter which one it is. We have a big problem on our hands. We have 12 people saying, I know nothing of the Holy Spirit in my life. And so Luke is trying to say, here comes the gospel, and it's powerful. It disturbs them. Now, I want to take you on a side road for just a moment, because I understand this passage is of much controversy. 
And so I think it necessitates that I try to answer for you what is Luke saying here and what is he not? This idea that Paul says, do you believe, did you receive the Holy Spirit? And they say, no, we haven't heard of it. There are entire churches and denominations that build an entire doctrine on this. And what is it that they say? You see, you need a two-step conversion. You need a two-step process that you first believe in and God regenerates your heart, but that's not sufficient. That's not enough. You need a, a second blessing And that is the presence of the Holy Spirit coming into your life. Luke nor Paul is saying anything like that. There is no such thing as a two-step process coming to Christ. You need no other blessing from God on high to affirm that you are, in fact, a Christian. Now, you might be wondering, why is this here If that's the case, we spoke earlier in Acts 2, that is the day of Pentecost, and you remember the Holy Spirit comes down and he fills the people and they begin to speak in tongues and prophesy. And we talked about it, if you were here many months ago, it's more of a gift of hearing than it is of speaking. But what did we learn? We said that Pentecost, it's a a non-repeatable event. And yet you've been marking in your Bible, haven't you, as we've gone chapter by chapter, verse by verse, then why at these different times does the Holy Spirit come down and there seem to be a small Pentecost? Why are there these other groups of people getting the Spirit and therefore prophesying and speaking in tongues? And so these people try to make a theological doctrine and say, you need more. You need a two-step process. That's what happened with the apostles, isn't it? Friends, the answer to that question is yes. Did that happen to the apostles? Yes, and you understand why, right? When Jesus was on this earth and they were following him, They had believed on the Lord Jesus Christ. What had not come? The Holy Spirit. And do you remember? Jesus lives, he dies, he raises from the dead, he ascends into heaven, and he promised his disciples, what is coming? It's better that I leave because someone is coming. And his name is the Holy Spirit. He's the comforter. He will lead you in truth. He will convict you of sin. But what do we learn at Pentecost? It's the reminder to everybody That what Jesus did on the cross, when he says it is finished, he meant every word of it. And the kingdom of heaven welcomed him back in and sent the Spirit of God to indwell his people. And then you remember we jump right into Acts. Jesus had already told his disciples about the Great Commission. I want you to teach. I want you to baptize. I want you to do these things. I'm going to be with you. And then in Acts chapter 1, they're asking the wrong question. That is the disciples. Jesus is now the time that you're going to take the throne and and things are going to get good for us. We're going to enjoy life. We're going to rule. And he picks on him. He says, "You, you have no idea what you're talking about. But you're going to receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you. And do you remember what he says after that? You're going to be my witnesses. Where? In Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. Now you've been marking your Bibles. And what have you noticed? 
Well, Acts 2 told you about Pentecost, and that was in Jerusalem. You kept reading, and then you found out the Holy Spirit came down with Cornelius in Judea. And you kept reading, and you found out Philip was doing some gospel ministry in Samaria, and Peter and John came, and the Holy Spirit came down again. What is Luke trying to tell us? He's trying to tell us there is no Greek or Jew. You are all equal in Christ Jesus. The same Spirit, the same gifts come from heaven and indwell all of His people. He wants all of His church to know you are mine. And you can imagine in this context and in this world, Jews thinking they're greater than Greeks or Gentiles. They're all needing affirmation. We are of the same body. We have one king, and his name is Jesus. And so at every stage, the apostles are there, and you recognize the gift of the Spirit coming down, and they're working works of grace, showing the fulfillment. It's as though God keeps saying, I told you so. Listen, I told you, I promised, and here it is. And he does it over and over and over again. Now, I don't think Ephesus is meant to be the picture necessarily of the ends of the earth. Maybe it is, but I think it is meant to be a transitional one. You remember we talked about Apollos only knowing the baptism of John. And what is Paul alluding to here in Ephesus? There's a transition from the old covenant. And here's the new covenant. You people have heard that you need to repent. You don't know who you're to believe in, but you need to repent. And here it is. You need to believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, and you will be saved. And so here these disciples, I don't think they began as Christians. I do think they finished The gospel comes in, disturbs them. They have an understanding of the Messiah. Paul tells them it's Jesus. They repent and believe and are therefore baptized. And so why am I telling you all that? Because some of you need to hear it. You do not need more of the Holy Spirit. When he regenerated you, he gave every bit of himself to you. He does live and dwell within you. You remember that unique passage. There's a parallel passage, Matthew 6, and I think it's Luke 11. Matthew 6 is the Sermon on the Mount, and Jesus is instructing the disciples and the crowds, and he's saying, if if you're a good father, and you give your children good gifts, because you wouldn't give them a snake or, or a rock, you would give your child good gifts. And then he compares you, the evil father, To the heavenly father, how would not he give you great gifts? Matthew gives you a wonderful account. You love Matthew's account. And then you read Luke's account. And it's almost the same until that very end. When Luke tells you what? How will not the father give you the Holy Spirit? And you thought, I didn't ask for that. I wanted the other good gifts. And what is Luke telling you? You have all the good gifts when the Holy Spirit comes into your life. You need no two-step process. If you have believed on the Lord Jesus Christ, his spirit dwells in you and he's made his home and he's not going away because the gospel comes in and it in fact disturbs us. Now, let's consider 
how the gospel disturbs the synagogue, and we'll call it the hall. So you've got these 12 apostles who come to Christ by the preaching or teaching of Paul and the descending of the Holy Spirit into their life. But then Luke continues, and what does he say? So Paul went out from their midst, that is the 12, but some men joined him and believed among whom, oh, excuse me, I'm in the wrong chapter there. Um, And he entered, verse 8, the synagogue and for three months spoke boldly. Here goes Paul, he's back onto his mission, the one that he stays on quite regularly. He enters the city and where does he begin? He begins with the synagogue and he's there for about three months And he says he's at the synagogue. And I think Luke is trying to tell you something. He's not saying that Paul is simply at the synagogue on, say, the Sabbath, on, say, the worship service. He's at the synagogue regularly. And that is because the synagogue was a place where people would go daily for prayers. Pray to God. Prayed for. They would go for mercy ministry. They would go for teachings or Bible studies, if you wanted to call it that. They also had their worship service there. And so here's Paul. He enters the synagogue for three months. And what does Paul do? Well, he reasons with them. He is proving that Jesus is the Son of God. Now, we need to be reminded of why Luke is saying that. You remember Christianity comes out of Judaism. That is to say, in the Old Testament, God had a people of himself, for himself, and that was Israel. And as you're reading your Old Testament, you're scratching your head and you're going, you guys don't seem to be getting it. You don't seem to understand what God is doing for you, how he has called you. And in fact, they quite misinterpret the scriptures and fail to see Jesus. And so Paul, the reason why he keeps going to the synagogue is he's saying, Jews need to be evangelized. They need to hear who is Jesus and what is he like. And so Paul comes back to the synagogue and he wants them to know it's not who you are. Your ethnicity, your nationality does not save you. You need Christ. And so he spends time with them, whether preaching, perhaps on the Sabbath, maybe even one-on-one or some other form of lecturing, he's spending time with them, showing them Christ. But Luke, again, describes what he does. He calls it bold. He says that Paul is speaking boldly. And I was reflecting on that. And I think we like to say, Sure he was, because that's Paul. Paul's just a bold person. I don't actually think that's true. If you read the letters to Corinth, you'll learn that Paul was not the greatest of speakers, number one. Number two, if you know anything about the book of Ephesians, the letter that Paul writes to the church that he is at right now, do you remember what Paul tells the Ephesians? Pray for me. Pray that I would be bold. Pray that I would preach boldly, that I would speak boldly. Because I think Paul understands I can't do it in my own strength. And he's just following suit with what the disciples, other, the other disciples did. Do you remember in Acts chapter 4, Peter and John, they've just been accused and abused by the Sanhedrin. They come back to the people and they're praying. And what is it that they pray for? They don't pray that they would stop the persecution or stop the suffering. They ask God 
for boldness. God, make us bold that we would stand firm on truth and proclaim truth. And so I think Paul is saying here, God, make me bold. I don't need a personality trait. I need to depend on you. Help me to be humble, to be faithful, to be fervent, and preach the good news of Christ. And so Luke says that Paul is preaching or teaching, speaking boldly. And what is he preaching and speaking about? Well, he says it's about the kingdom of God. Does that surprise you at all? When you think about what it means to go share the gospel with somebody, your neighbor, they don't know Jesus, and so you're going to go share the gospel. Does the phrase kingdom of God show up when you share the gospel? Does it even enter into your mind as a part of your thinking when it comes to sharing and proclaiming the gospel? Luke's not giving you much information here. He just says that's what Paul was doing. And did you know that the New Testament never seems to explain a great deal in the preaching of what the kingdom of God is? It's as though the people already understood. The phrase kingdom of God shows up four to seven times in the entirety of the Old Testament. But the message is quite clear that there is a God who rules and reigns and he is sending forth his son, that is the Messiah, to set up his kingdom. And so you get John the Baptist who enters into the ministry, finishing out the old covenant. And what does John the Baptist say? Pay attention. The kingdom of God or kingdom of heaven is at hand. And don't you find it interesting that Jesus begins his public ministry by saying what? Repent and believe for the kingdom of God is here. You get this phrase, the kingdom of God, but does it show up in our gospel presentations? Especially in America. Could this not be a powerful picture of what we're talking about? Because what is it that the kingdom of God is demonstrating? The gospel's not about you. And some of you need to hear me say that. Stop reading your Bibles and going, what does this have to say about me? It's not about you. It is for you. It's not about you. It's about Jesus. The kingdom of God knows nothing of the individual. It knows everything about the family of God. We don't come to Christ and go sit at home by ourselves to do church. We come together because you're a body, a family, a community. And that's what heaven will be like. You won't be living by yourself. Sorry, introverts. You'll have rest. It's about the kingdom of God. What happens when you share the gospel about the kingdom of God? When it's not about you. When it's not a tailor-fit, personalized, packaged message so that you perhaps will believe it. What happens if you preach and you teach the kingdom of God? Did you see what Luke says? But when some became stubborn and continued in unbelief, they began speaking evil of the way. I think that should caution you and me. How often does the Bible tell you 
and tell me, be careful how you hear. That when the word of God is being preached and it's being taught, that there are people whose hearts are hardened. You know that there is no preaching, no reading, no teaching of the truth of God in which you and I ever lived unchanged. If you're a believer this morning, your soul ought to be nourished. Your life ought to be turned upside down. You are awaiting the glory of God in the appearance of Christ Jesus to spend all eternity with him. You ought to be set afire for the gospel. And yet some of you, it matters not how I preach or teach. Your hearts are hardened. You do not believe anything that I'm saying. You are further discouraged and frustrated by such a truth. We're praying for you. We're praying that the gospel would come and disturb you. That there would be a spiritual awakening. That you would leave with a smile just like the others, knowing the good news of Jesus. What is Luke saying? When you preach and teach the kingdom of God, it always works. Unfortunately, some of that work is not what you want because some people become stubborn and they begin to speak evil of the way. How do you describe the Christian life? Isn't that an interesting thing that Luke says? The gospel comes, it disturbs You have people who believe, some who are hardened. Those who are hardened, they go and speak evil of the way. Is that how you would describe the Christian life? What's the Christian life all about? Luke says it's the way. That there is a path. What it means to follow Jesus, it's not left up to you. You don't determine it for yourself. And don't you appreciate how regularly the Psalms tell you that? That Psalm 16 tells you, you make known to me the path of life. Psalm 17, my steps have held fast to your paths. Psalm 23, he leads me in paths of righteousness. Psalm 25, make me to know your ways, O Lord. Teach me your paths. Teach me your way, O Lord, and lead me on a level path. Lead me in the path of your commandments. It's, there's a way. There's a path in what it means to follow Jesus. We call it obedience. And the reason why we call it obedience, it's because it's not your way. And it's not your path. It's his. And we are to be followers of it. And so as been the custom for Paul, his experience, he's preaching There's stubbornness. They're beginning to speak evil. And he leaves the synagogue. He leaves his fellow brothers, as it were. And he goes down the street, perhaps even next door, at the hall of Tyrannus. We don't know who Tyrannus is, by the way. So if you're wondering where, we don't know much about him. He has this big hall, this lecture hall, this auditorium. Perhaps there's an entire school attached to it. And Paul goes in there. And he begins to preach and teach again. And Luke is trying to remind you, it's the same pattern. When persecution arises, look out. Be ready, Christian. 
because so does fruit. Don't merely be discouraged that times are hard. Look and see what happens when the gospel disturbs people and places. And so Paul rents this space, whether he paid for it or it was just given to him, we, we don't know. But he's there and he's, he's teaching. He's preaching regularly and he's doing it. You got the time marker in the text from 11 a.m. to 4 p.m. And you thought, that's one heck of a sermon. We're not doing that today. But I do want to put you in that cultural context because I think it underlines how powerful God really is. You know, that was the midday break for the Mediterranean culture. You weren't doing your grocery shopping or your clothing shopping from 11 to 4 because everything was closed. They all went home. Most are taking a nap. You would say, that's not a good business strategy, Paul, to start your ministry when everyone is asleep. And yet, what happens? For two years, did you see that? For two years, every day, Paul goes in. And we get no implication that he was ever all by himself. People began to come. I think there are multiple observations you can make. Number one, I think if you are in this room, young, old, it doesn't matter to me. If you have a desire to want to teach in the academy, we need people like that. Paul is in some of the most hostile places and he's trying to teach the gospel. We want to pray for teachers, those who walk into what we might call a secular world. Think a college campus. It's the easiest place in which the culture can push its agenda. And we want to pray for you. If you have a desire to want to teach, we want to pray for you. That is a unique place, but it is a necessary one who wants to show forth the glory of God, even in the academy. And yet, during this nap time for adults, which we would all appreciate, here they come to hear. And can you imagine the sacrifice of Paul here? You know he's a tent maker, right? We were talking about that a couple weeks ago. Paul got up early, as many of you do. He went to work, and he had a very difficult job. That's why we'll learn about the aprons, the handkerchiefs. He's, he's sweaty. He's disgusting. He leaves work. He doesn't take a lunch break. He doesn't take a nap time. He goes and he teaches. What a conviction to want to proclaim the gospel that every moment of his waking life he spends giving it for the glory of God. He does it over and over and over again. And it must have been incredible. One commentator speaks about Paul's teaching there, a much older commentator, and what he says I quite appreciate he says he, he's talking about Paul, he must have infected his hearers with his own energy and zeal so that they were willing to sacrifice their siesta for the sake of listening to Paul. He was so captivated by Christ and under the conviction of truth that it must have been contagious that they would give up of their breaks to come and listen. And God sustained that work for two years. And in fact, Luke says, all the residents of Asia. Now, does he literally mean all? Maybe. 
but he certainly means a whole lot. That there is a steady flow, because remember what we said about Ephesus, it's the gateway into Asia. And so Paul's teaching isn't just reaching Ephesus, it's reaching surrounding cities. People are coming from all over to hear the truth of what Paul is saying. Let's quickly go on to this third. Where does the gospel disturb us? It disturbed some disciples. It disturbed the community, or disturbed the synagogue, the hall. And then you get the community of people. You read about the sons of Sceva. We don't know much about them. But Luke tells you that God is doing something extraordinary. Luke has told you that God's done all kinds of miracles. But now he says it's extraordinary He wants you to know that there's something more added to what God is doing. It's not meant to be some kind of pattern or power play. God is doing something incredible in their midst, such that Paul's sweaty sweatbands are being tossed around to all the sick and suffering, and people are being healed. Now, none of you want anything that I sweat on. It won't help you at all. It's not the Kurt Schilling bloody sock, okay? If you don't know about that, I'm sorry. I'm a baseball fan. But God is working extraordinary miracles in and around this people. And then something altogether terrifying happens. If you read it and you thought it was funny, you misread it. What does Luke tell you? There are these itinerant Jewish exorcists, ones who are evicting, calling out, demons and they're practicing some form of exorcism on this man who has been demon possessed he's given you a very weighty detail did you hear what he said Luke tells you these itinerant Jewish people exorcists I adjure you by the Jesus whom Paul proclaims They're Jewish. They can't say the name Yahweh. They can only say Jehovah. They're not even saying that. They're borrowing the name of Jesus and saying, the Jesus that Paul talks about in his name, we're asking that you leave. We want to summon a power from heaven as though it were an optional commodity to our business. Come on out. A grab-and-go incantation. If we'll just use his name, I'm sure it'll work. It works for Paul. It's not funny. It's terrifying. Because do you see what happens? Luke has to provide a detail for you and me. Because if he left it out, we ought to be all scared. Because what happens is they use Jesus' name. And then Luke must tell you what takes place next. If you don't, You learn that these people are faking it. They have fooled you and me to believe something about their physical power. And yet what happens after they speak to the demons? The demon speaks back. What do they say? Jesus I know. Paul I recognize. Who are you? They're shown fakes immediately. You see, people can fake. You and me, they can fool us. You can't even fool the demons. They tried to borrow the almighty 
son of God's name. And they were entirely exposed, beaten, stripped of their clothes, and sent out into the crowds. We must not think that Jesus, the name is meant to be for good measure. That if I'll just utter his name, I'll get something better in life. These people foolishly tried to call down an incantation from heaven as though it were theirs, that they could bind the power of God by simply using his name. And it did not work. It destroyed them. And then ironically, the name that they misused became magnified such that people come confessing their sins publicly that they practiced magic. And I'll do it quickly. That's exactly what they meant. They had these books. Luke tells you about them. They believed in magic. And yet what it meant for them to turn to Christ was a public, irreversible repentance. They had sinned publicly. They confessed publicly. But did, did you see how they went about it? They burned the books. They took what was of intense value. It's not the book that's on your shelf that you'd never grabbed before. These weren't scrolls or parchments. It was a bound book. They're rare. And they burn it. One commentator tried to tell us that it's roughly $50 million worth of books. This is not a Fahrenheit 451 political, we want to hush people. Did you see? This is voluntary. They saw their life was not in accord with scriptures. And so we said, we want it out. We want it rid of us. We don't want anything to do with it. So they brought it out publicly and they burned it. They saw following Jesus faithfully more valuable than holding on to even these books. And so you're trying to ask yourself, what does all this mean? How do we put this together? I think the real theme is the word power shows up in verse 11 and verse 20. You see it a little bit differently in your English translations. The Greek word there for power is dynamis. And you immediately had a word come to mind, didn't you? We get an English word from that, dynamite. It's explosive. It disturbs. It's not safe. This is the word that Paul is going to use to the church at Rome. I am not ashamed of the gospel for it is the dynamite of God that dynamite still at work brothers and sisters it's in the word before you the word is meant to come in and disturb you it's meant to create a spiritual awakening perhaps a hunger for where we pray against a hardening but the word of God is still at work do you have the same value that what you just saw? You'll rid your life of whatever you might call earthly value. Maybe it doesn't need to be financial. Maybe it's reputational. Maybe it's professional. Maybe it's relational. 
But is following Jesus of greater value? Is the dynamite of God working in your life? Is the dynamite of God working in your life that you need to go tell other people? That you're under such conviction you'll give up a break? I know that happens to some of you. You've gone to work and people ask you questions or perhaps they share things with you and you didn't want to have any of that done. I'm just trying to order a hamburger. Is the dynamite of God working in your life that it's worth a conversation even in the checkout line? Is the dynamite of God working that some of you might repent and believe this morning? That you might, in fact, follow the way. We have great hope. I pray none of you in Christ are discouraged this morning because Luke tells you the Word of God is always moving and increasing and it is mightily at work. Do you believe Him? Let's pray to that end. Our God and our Father, it's your word, a psalm of David. It says the voice of the Lord is powerful. The voice of the Lord is full of majesty. Oh, I pray that we believe that this morning. That your dynamite have might have been sent and it might bring people to conviction to share the gospel. It might bring people to repent of sin or it might shake the dead to life. That Jesus, you might be praised and honored and we might faithfully follow in the way. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.